the book of Romans here, as, as we pick it up, uh, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, is the writer. He's writing this uh, letter to the church at Rome, and, uh, and, and he's excited. He wants to get to this church. He's heard all about this church. People are talking about the faith that is, that is happening, that is, that is uprising in Rome. And so Paul is writing this letter. He's excited to get there. And, and then he starts going into humanity's relationship with the Creator. And, 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 and what we unpacked last week is how humanity knows the existence of God and the power of God because it's been clearly displayed since creation and even today. And so essentially humanity is, is without excuse. And, and so we have an opportunity to respond to that truth, to the reality of who God is and his power. And, and yet Paul shared that what? We don't, glorify him. We don't say, thank you, God. We actually take that truth and we suppress it so that we can worship created things that we turn into gods. And so whenever we talk about idolatry, in scripture, because that's what it is. Whenever you replace God, whatever area on the throne of your heart and your life, ever since Genesis 3, it's been very, very clear that when we do that, it affects relationships with each other and it affects our relationship with creation. You guys, idolatry does not sit in idle. Idolatry leads to rebellion. Okay, it doesn't say stagnant. Like, it, like once I've removed him from his place, there is an active response to that that is in rebellion to who God is and what he's called me to. And, and now Paul, who's acknowledged this, he's now gonna go specifically into this. And so uh, we'll get started here in Romans chapter one and we'll read verses 26 and 27. This is what it says. It says, for this reason... God gave them up. Now, remember, this is starting to become a reoccurring thing where it says God gave them up. In other words, uh, as we saw last week, when humanity says, no, God, I'm going to do my own thing, my own way, um, the wrath of God is actually him saying, okay, that's what you want. You're, gonna, you're going to experience the, the consequences of that decision. You're going to experience how it's not going to be fulfilling, how it's going to be imprisoning. Like, you're going to experience that. And so the wrath we saw is actually him saying, okay. And so here we see it again in 26. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay. We are a church that goes verse by verse. And so for better or worse, we're going to address what's there. And we're going to unpack it. And this is the longest passage in the Bible on homosexuality. 
And so we want to give it the attention it deserves, the attention that Paul gave it. And we also know that in this uh, current cultural moment, there are contradictory truths being taught and embraced within Christianity leading to confusion. And so when that's the case and when those things collide, it's really important to take a moment and to pause and to really unpack what is being communicated. Now, I want to be honest with you, like me uh, taking more time to unpack this, this isn't making this, uh, this worse sin than that. Because sometimes we can say, well, you're taking all this time here. Well, uh, no, I want to be very clear on that. By me doing this, I'm not like ranking sins for us this morning, okay? If you think that's going to happen, we're all in trouble. I'll just tell you right now. Um, but what we do is we want to um, give this the time and the intention and give it the clarity that it deserves because you guys, at the end of the day, clarity is kindness, there is nothing worse than being left in this state of confusion or even wondering, like, what, what is this really saying? Or I feel this way, um, and, and I think the church is here. And then, like, a year later, you go, oh. And, and people get hurt that way. And so, for me, it's like, let's just be upfront and give clarity if I really care about you. And so, that's what we're going to attempt uh, to do. And I, I, I'm... I'm very well aware the church world historically has done a ton of damage by how it's handled this. Um, and, and so I want to really unpack this uh, for us this morning. So when, when someone is, is having uh, or has a same-sex attraction, or they say, I'm, I'm gay, they're saying, I, I have a same-sex attraction, what you need to understand and know is that that attraction isn't a sin. Okay? So I want to be really clear on that. What Paul is stating is he's stating the sexual expression of these desires are sinful. Now, recently, particularly with this passage, many have attempted to suggest that the traditional understanding of these verses is mistaken. And so the argument is that Paul was talking about non-consensual same-sex relationships and that these verses uh, prohibit sexual exploitation or abuse or other forms of non-consensual same-sex relationships such as rape, uh, pederasty, uh, prostitution, master-slave relationship, or that, that it's addressing here certain kinds of same-sex uh, sexual relationships where one partner had a much higher social status than the person he was having sex with. And, and in the Roman world, we, we know that uh, male same-sex uh, sexual relationships, they often existed within power differentials. And you guys, Paul knew that. Like, Paul knows that. He, he knows what he's talking about. He is a well-cultured, well-traveled Roman citizen. So he's not someone just like disconnected from uh, what's going on or, or what people are dealing with. Uh, but what we see is when we really study this, the actual language of these passages, it doesn't support that argument. Notice, uh, let's just break it down. Notice that Paul uses generic terms for men and women here. It says women exchanged and then men also abandoned. 
Men committed shameful acts with other men. Uh, in Greek literature, when active or passive uh, power differentials are described, uh, the words erest and eromenos are often used to describe that dominant and dominated partner. But Paul doesn't use these terms here. Neither does he use one of the many Greek terms uh, that he would have used to describe pederastic relationships, which is a lover of boys or a corrupter of boys. Uh, slaves and uh, slave masters, they're not mentioned here, and neither are prostitutes. So if, if Paul was primarily concerned about the age, the social inequality, or the lack of consent between the partners, he does not state that at all. The fact that he uses generic terms for men and women suggests that he doesn't have a particular kind of abusive relationship in mind here. Also, we see Paul uses language here of mutuality to describe the relationship, right? It says, inflamed with lust for one another. Uh, it says, committed shameful acts with other uh, men. And then it says, received in themselves the due penalty for their actions, right? The due penalty for their error. Now, you guys, this language wouldn't make any sense if Paul was thinking only of an abuser and an abused. Like, like Paul wouldn't condemn the victim of abuse, right? If it's like a teenage boy, he is not uh, going to condemn that, that, that boy. Like Paul's language here is seeming to apply to consensual same-sex sexual relationships. Uh, Paul also, and this is a really important piece, he, he also highlights uh, the female same-sex sexual relationships first and then compares that to the male. Now, um, when he says there are women exchanged in the same way the men also. Now, what does this tell us and teach us about the kind of relationships Paul is talking about? And, and what kinds of female same-sex sexual relationships were happening in those days? Because I've heard some people say, well, there were no same-sex con uh, consensual relationships that were going on. So he didn't have any of that to draw on. And I would go, no, uh, history uh, totally dis uh, discredits that. Like, historical uh, evidence suggests otherwise, and especially with women. Female same-sex sexual relations were the most often way it went about between two consenting adults. Uh, that was uh, predominantly how uh, it was happening uh, in during that time period. And, and, and Paul correlates these female same-sex relationships with the male relationships. Now, male same-sex uh, relationships, they were mostly between uh, two social unequals, and they were often unconsensual. But we do have examples of sexual relations that are mutual and between social equals. And once again, Paul has the language to be able to describe that. But the truth is, on three occasions, Paul mentions same-sex sexual relations here and in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy 1, and on every occasion, he prohibits it. The language that he uses, it contains no clear references to pederasty, abuse, or non-consensual relationships. The, the evidence just isn't 
there. What Paul's language does is it reflects the practices and the struggles of early converts living in the Roman world. And you guys, when it talks about desire and passion here, uh, he's, not, he's not saying, hey, these desires are wrong because they're excessive. Uh, what he's pointing out is this is wrong because those desires are satisfied in a sexual relationship that's contrary to God's will. He's talking about the action. So, so when he says to go against nature, it is to go against God's design. And you guys, so this isn't this like fluid cultural matter. It's an unchanging creation matter. It's timeless. And it's for our, it's for our good, for all of our good, right? Like, like God is, he is perfect. He is good in every way. And so what he creates is that. So when he's defined and said, this is how it is, this is how it needs to go, it it, it is for our good. And so what we have to ask and get to this morning is, what is then the biblical definition of marriage? Right? What what is it? And, And what we see through scripture is marriage is a lifelong one flesh covenant between two sexually different people from different families united before God with the purpose of displaying God's story to creation. And any kind of sexual relationship outside of that covenant union before the Lord are considered sin. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and I'm going to have him pull up Genesis 2, 23, and 24. Genesis chapter 2, 24 is often quoted throughout the New Testament to express the essential nature of what marriage is. And I think that's important uh, that you know that the New Testament is saying that, right? Because so often it's like, ah, it's the Old Testament. Ah. But notice in Genesis 2, 24, let, let me read it. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I want you to notice uh, immediately there the therefore that the sentence kicks off with. The therefore is connecting Genesis 2.24 to Genesis 2.23. And what is Genesis 2.23? What does that say? It says, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of Man, and so what Genesis two twenty three is 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 what's happening is uh, it's literally celebrating Eve's similarity and difference. She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, which describes her humanity. But she's also to be called woman because she was taken out of man. And what we see here is this is a statement about different sex. Taken out of a man, it refers back to when Eve was created from Adam's rib, as, as some translations put it. But, but the, the Hebrew term here uh, for that is actually um, selah, and it, and it never means rib in the Bible. It almost always refers to the side of a sacred piece of architecture like the tabernacle or, uh, or, or, or the temple. And so Selah means side, and the image here, and it's a beautiful image, is it's of the man being split in half to form this woman. And the word, therefore, in 224, 
It takes that common humanity and sex difference of Adam and Eve and builds it into the very meaning of a one flesh union. In other words, it says that, that what? That, that the two that became one flesh in verse 24, they are specifically male and female, Adam and Eve. The one flesh union that it's talking about is like a reuniting of what was split apart. This beautiful picture of oneness. And so this one flesh union is the biblical way of talking about marriage. Sex difference is an intrinsic part of what marriage is built into its very nature. And, and what's so beautiful about God, and in Genesis chapter one, uh, it's, it's amazing how Genesis one in creation, it describes all of these differences in creation, doesn't it? talks about heaven and earth, evening and morning, land and sea, day and night, light and darkness. And what's so beautiful is how instead of these differences creating chaos, God, in a way like only he can, uh, brings them together, orchestrates it in such a way uh, that they declare his goodness, his glory, and his power to all of creation. He unifies them. And we see that, that literally the end, right, of Genesis uh, chapter 1 in, in verse 27, it culminates, right? It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created uh, them. And so what we see is, once again, humanity is displaying this incredible difference and yet unity that only God can bring about. So that's what we see, that male and female is woven into the fabric of God's diverse creation account. And, and Genesis chapter 2 isn't just describing Adam and Eve's marriage, but it's announcing that God created marriage to be an institution. See, we, we, we see this from the shift in perspective from 2.23, 2.24, because in chapter 2.23, Adam speaking when he's, when he celebrates the reuniting of the one that was uh, taken from his side. He's celebrating that. But then in 2.24, the narrator jumps in. Now, who's the narrator here? Uh... Guys, the narrator, Matthew 19 tells, the narrator is God. So Adam's talking in 23, then all of a sudden God jumps in to give this standard description of what marriage is to be moving forward. And so the wording here, it suggests that he considers Adam and Eve's one flesh union to be the standard of all future marriages. This is not just a description here. This is a prescription. And so... This is the creator's design. The two persons to be both human and sexually different coming together. You guys, uh, this is, isn't just some archaic Old Testament thing. I can't stress that enough because so often we discredit the Old Testament and say, well, look where we're at today and now and even the New Testament. And so, okay, let's, let's go to Jesus then, huh? Let's go to Jesus. Let's look to him because Jesus is in the New Testament. He's in the culture that was, that was happening. And, and we're brought into Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, this is, this is like a huge moment. Okay. Uh, in, in Matthew 19, uh, the Pharisees are there and, 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 and they want to, and they want to get Jesus, right? They want to catch him. 
And so they ask this question that, that I think is, is, is so critical to this conversation. It, it may be uh, one of the most important things when we talk about God's design for marriage. But what they do is uh, they essentially try to uh, corner Jesus on divorce. And they're asking him about his thoughts on divorce. Because at that time, you know, because throughout uh, history uh, in the Bible, you see at different points in time, divorce being more flippant and other times it's shifting. And so they're like, hey, uh, what are your thoughts, you know, uh, on divorce and, and this? And, and so they had this lax view of, of divorce. And, and when I read this interaction, I'm like, here is the moment. This is the New Testament. This is the time where Jesus can, can literally recast vision, right? He can redefine what marriage is, what it historically was, and, and how it needs to look moving forward, how closed off it is, how open it is. Like, like this is that moment where like, like we're all waiting for. What is he going to say? And so this is how Jesus responds. In Matthew 19, verse 4, it says, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You guys, Jesus's use of Genesis here is huge. It's huge. He's quoting Genesis 1.27 and 2.24, isn't he? This is how he responds to the question about what was happening in that culture with divorce. And so with every opportunity now to reframe what marriage is according to Jesus and what he says, he goes back to Genesis 1.21. And he says, have you not read the creation of humans as male and female? And what he's reiterating here is this is an essential part of the definition of marriage. And in 2.24, what is he highlighting? The two who will become one flesh. And instead of in 2.24, him connecting it back to 2.23, what does he do? He goes all the way back to chapter 1.27, where it said, what? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. He goes back to a verse that even more so highlights the sexual differences between the two. So Jesus is literally going out of his way. And he's like, have, have you not read what I've said? What has been stated? So for Jesus, the Genesis passage isn't just the beginning of a story that's subject to change. It is the blueprint. Now, you guys, I want, I want to be really, really clear on this. The reasons for when we talk about uh, same-sex attraction, and, and that when we talk about that, like, the, that's a very complex subject. And, 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 and some people just want to, like, go, oh, it's just this, and this is what it is. And that's kind of a pulp, pop culture way to handle it, but it's not, like, scientifically Christian or non-Christian, what they're saying. I mean, uh, literally, the uh, American Psychological Association says, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Are you hearing that? So there's no way we can just go, oh, it's just this, right? No, it's saying there is this element of like biology and nature and environment and, and, and these things and, and what's happening. And these things 
come into play and it's very complex. And so there should be incredible grace in knowing that, right? And, and I think so often we're just like, shut this thing down. And, and, and we just miss the complexities here. And, and here's the, also the reality that we need to remember that every single person, everybody, is born with desires that are affected by the fall. Every single one of us are born with the desires that are affected by the fall. I mean, Jeremiah 17, 9, this is what it says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? It's like, oh, just follow your heart. Don't ever tell me to follow my heart. My heart's a mess, okay? And, and like, my heart is deceitful to me. It's going to lie to me in its nature. Uh, and, and here's the other thing. It's desperately sick. And then who can understand it? My heart is going to confuse me because of the fall, right? And, and, and then also we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit uh, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Are you hearing this? Like, this is what we're born with. Right? So often, like, God, why do I have to struggle? Why is this so, I don't want, like, all, we ask that, don't we? And what we need to continue to remember, or when we don't understand why someone else struggles in this or has this by, we need to understand that, that we are born with desires that are affected by the fall. None of us is beyond that. And so we can't just assume, oh, these desires are just given to me by God. Like, like no, uh, you guys, we are called to choose right and wrong based upon how God defines right and wrong. Not whether my behavior is, is, is driven by this unchosen desire that I have. You guys, inborn desire does not justify behavior. Like, it doesn't work. And so what we have to do uh, with this posture as we read Romans 1, 26 to 27 is we got to go, man, if if, if you're in this place and, 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 or if I'm struggling with this, um, we need to graciously and humbly minister well. We haven't done that well historically as a church. Within the church world, what we've done is, and I mentioned this last week, is we've idolized marriage. We've idolized marriage, right? We've, we've idolized like everybody should be married. You should be married or, or worse, like God wants you to be married or once you're married and, and, and we highlight marriage so that absolutely anybody who isn't called to be married or, or maybe somebody, uh, staying away from a lifestyle that is contradictory to scripture and, and God's calls you remain single. What we've done is literally say, no, marriage is where fulfillment is at. And we've done the same thing with sex. We've literally highlighted those things. We're like, oh, oh like sex. And, and, and if you just wait and all this, and then when you get married, oh my goodness, it will be the most fulfilling sex you could ever imagine. <laughs> yeah, do I need 
probably don't need to say anything, right? And we can even laugh at that, although our person next to us is like, don't laugh. But, <laughs> but the reality is we know that's not true. And yet throughout Christianity, what we've done is we've literally created an idol out of marriage and out of sex so that if, if, I'm, if I'm not called to that, if God doesn't like lay that out for me, uh, then what I believe, according to, to us, to the Christian community, is that I'm less than and I cannot have a fully flourishing life. And I just, I, 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 I go, where are we getting this from? Right? Because literally the author of this, Paul, single. Jesus, single. Right? Like, like, you need to understand and know right now, and young people in the room, you need to hear me on this. Marriage and sex are not an essential for any human to flourish. They're not, biblically speaking. Like, like, that is not like, oh, I have to have this or I cannot experience all that God has for me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Like, no way. Okay, and so part of this and part of the shame that's come out of this, you guys, is a culture that we've created where we've idolized uh, sex and, and, and marriage. And guess what? We've idolized it and our marriages and the divorce rate is the same. So that didn't work. And I've been, I've been part of the problem before. And this leads people in these different struggles or these questions or this confusion. It leads people to hide in the shadows, praying for God to take a desire away. The startling stat that according to a recent large study, 90, 96% of gay people have prayed at least once in their life that God would make them straight. And, and I just read these things, and I think so often we are so condescending, we're dismissive, we're, we're evil. And we miss the sight and, of what God's calling us to do. And, and so instead of being a community, uh, when someone is struggling, regardless of what it is that God may be calling them out to, we stop being a community that anybody would want to be a part of, that anyone, anybody would even feel welcomed in, right? Because if you're going to call anybody out of something uh, that, that is a way of, of, of their life and, and is their community, and you're going to say, no, there's something better, and you're going to invite them in, and let's just call it church community, what, what makes the church community something that they would leave something else for, Right? How are we going to love that person? How are we going to draw alongside? How are we going to be uh, that, you guys? Um, because uh, literally, Paul is saying that, that he's clear on this. Like, acting on this such attraction, it offends God. And in God's wrath, what does he do? He's given humans over to these over-desires to experience the consequences. That's what it says, this due penalty, right? So the Bible is clear, uh, both in the Old and the New Testament, that active same-sex sexual activity as an unrepentant pattern of behavior is a rejection of Jesus's lordship, and, and it leaves people outside of the kingdom of God. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, it says, this is Paul again, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying here is if, if any of you are, and, and that hits a lot closer to home, doesn't it? He's like, if any of you is in an unrepentant state where you continue to practice and do these things, you are denying the lordship of God over your life, and therefore you are disconnected from him. But never outside of his reach. See, the good news is there's mercy forgiveness, and transformation for all people who turn to Christ. Look at the very next verse after 9 and 10 in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Look what it says. I love this. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Like, are, are, are we hearing that, you guys? Uh, I, I love how he just says, he goes down this list of all these things that, uh, that, that are all uh, current issues that, that people that were choosing to follow Jesus, they were trying to come out of these patterns, these lifestyles that, that, that represented a life uh, against Christ. And, and he says, listen, I'm going to remind you right now, this is, this is what you were. You were practicing these things. But transformation has occurred in you through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And, and, and so, you know, when, when I've been reconciled to God, when, when I have a relationship with him, you know, am I still gonna struggle and, and fight the sin that's in my life and the desire? Yeah. And there's gonna be failures, you guys. It's going to be hard. There's going to, it's going to require a lot of grace, love, support, and, and prayers from my Christian community. But you guys, this is discipleship. Denying self, taking up my cross, and following Jesus. I mean, that's what it is. And so, yes, he's, he's highlighting here in 26, 27, same-sex sexual activity is a sin. But he's also, he, he's very clear, like, this is not the worst sin. All sexual immorality is sinful. And then he's going to reiterate this so that you and I who want to like think we're better than others can just be addressed here. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God, the, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, so any of you that were like, ah, oh, he's not talking to me today. Um, <laughs> all of us are on that list. All of us. 
All of us. In fact, I'm on there multiple times. And what he's doing is, he's, he's, one, he's calling out these self-created levels of depravity, right, that, that we've created, right? That, oh, 26 and 27, I'm glad you addressed that, Paul. Like, good. But then... I don't think anything about my, my deceit or my boasting, my gossip. So he's like, I'm going to weed this out. You guys, and, and, and what he's getting at is there, we need to understand that for us to truly understand and, and grasp the gospel, as Paul did, we need to have this mindset, just like him, where I'm the worst sinner I know. Where I'm reading this, and I'm not thinking about anybody else, I'm literally going, I'm the worst sinner that I know. I mean, I mean, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, uh, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost says, I'm the worst. And, and yet he's saying, Jesus came and he died for me. And, and, and you guys, the reality that if, if I really understand, man, I'm the worst sinner and Jesus came and died for me, then guess what? How I view you, how I minister to you, how I love you is going to be, it's going to come out of the truth that there's no one else that he wouldn't die for. And, and, and look at this, this list, right, of outworkings of idolatry. You guys, this is a list. I mean, we're talking the gossips, uh, haters of God, foolish, faithless, filled with uh, all manner of unrighteousness, the covet, right, uh, full of envy, murder, um, all these things, right, that he's unpacking here, and which is just like, man, there I am again. There, there's that thought again. And, and he says, then, I guess we got to ask, in beginning in verse 32, what is he saying when he says that people know that those who do such things deserve death? What he's talking about here is uh, every person in every society has understood, right, that there is a right and a wrong. And the wrong deserves punishment. Now, we kind of created within our societies and our cultures, we kind of create that, but we all know. And what he's saying is, is there are people, he's like, you are them, uh, who promote, endorse, and are even encouraging idolatry, even though you know the consequences. And this is something that's kind of easy to see in someone else. It's really hard to see in myself, isn't it? I was thinking about just like my kids, like how often do I encourage my children to make idols out of things? whether it's a test, an activity. How often am I stoking envy with people? Yeah, you should have that. Yeah, you deserve that. You need that. I think of the moments where we've participated in gossip, where instead of shutting it down and calling it out, we actually start joining and endorsing and stoking that fire of, he says, a byproduct of idolatry. Like, I have to ask, like, all these questions, right? Am I endorsing slander? I'll tell you what, it's political season. We better think about that. Yeah, say that about all those people. Yeah, and this, and that. Like, yeah, go, 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 right? And it's like, am I endorsing slander? And so we got to ask, how 
uh, how should God's people respond to these verses? And you guys, here's how we respond. There is a God who's made all of it. And he's made us in his image to know and to reflect his character. And that same God has in his wrath given us what we've chosen. Life without him, worshiping things which cannot satisfy. And I'll tell you this, whatever is in place of him, whatever God that is for you, you also need to know that he is the only God that can actually forgive you. None of those things that you're living for or that you think are gonna deliver, I tell you what, once you find out they don't pan out, you're, you're destroyed. That was everything, right? They can't forgive you. Jesus is the only one who for, can forgive you. And, and, and so all of those things are a dead end. And so what we have to do is, is in the beauty of the, of the world, we need to see God's existence, right? But then in the, in the brokenness of the world, we need to see God's justice, and when we see that uh, and we experience that, maybe in our own lives and the brokenness and the disconnect and all these things, when they're at work in my heart, I need to run back to the place where God's mercy is at the foot of the cross. I need to run there. And, and then before my Lord and Savior, I got to ask and I got to deal with it and say, God, like, what is the, the idols right now in my life? What was going on that is jostling for a position that only you should have? Only you and you alone should have that seat in my heart, in my life. Where are those envious, those slanderous, those disloyal, those lusty? Where are those? You guys, here's the thing. Every human is invited to bring whatever identity they hold on to. Isn't it interesting how we have all these like uh, identities? I was, I was given a card yesterday. Uh, I'm one of the coaches for my son's team and I was given a card, an identification that says coach. And I was thinking about that, like how uh, we all have these, these identities that come into play. Uh, it, it could be what you do, uh, it could be your race. It could be your sexuality. It could be uh, a multitude of things, right? Like, like if it's if it's my career, and that's what I I feel like defines me, then I call myself pastor, right? If it's um, uh, if my kids are like uh, they're my purpose, they're my idol, then I am father, and that's what I bring, right? Uh, uh, if everything is is about a, another area in my life, I attach my identity, right? to that. And ultimately, what we need to know and understand that all of those identities can become an idol. They can be an idol. And yet the invitation equally for every human uh, is to take whatever those identities are and to bring them to the Lamb of God and to lay them at his feet and say, here is, here's my identities. Here they are, I lay them at your feet, I surrender them to you, and I'm asking that you would replace my desire uh, within those identities and that, and that it would be reshaped with your heart's desires for those. I place my identity under the lordship of my new God-given identity, which is I am a loved child of God. And so all identities, whatever that idol may be, or whatever that thing is that you feel like defines you, we all bring them into the church today 
and they become secondary to my primary identity now as a beloved child of God. This is your primary identity. Everything else is second to that. And when I understand that, he doesn't like just erase your identity. What he does is he renews, he repurposes us, and we actually begin to experience the freedom and the joy and the grace that only comes when my identity rests in Jesus Christ and him alone. He doesn't want to just be my savior. He wants to be my Lord. He loves you so much. Are we willing to lay those things at his feet and say, God, I choose to embrace the identity that you have given me through the work of Jesus on the cross. And I'm going to live with that as my primary driver. Everything else, God, I pray that you would align it to your heart and he will meet you in that place. Just as 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11 says, what does it say? It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God, amen. And so our posture, our shifting, we need to, man, we need to love people well, be gracious, and we need to receive people who, who are trying to figure out how can I embrace this new identity that the Lord has given me? What does that look like? And we need to help people find that and more than anything, introduce them into what it looks like to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior so they can experience what 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11 is telling us, which is the beauty of the gospel message. And it's available to you. Let me pray for us.